In the name of the God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. Lawyer or not, I'm not sure that it's a great idea to set out to test Jesus. And it's funny because we hear that a lot in Scripture. Lots of people who are interacting with him in the text seem to have that goal. They've asked him questions intentionally to trick him or to trap him or to try to get him to say something that will get him in trouble in the crowd of people that he's in. I guess we have to give them a little credit. They don't know everything about Jesus at this point that we do. But still, it doesn't seem like a good motivation a good instinct for any kind of conversation, does it? To try to test someone, to try and bait them into saying something. And so he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's interesting about the Greek there is that inherit has several meanings. And we have no real way of knowing what exactly the man is asking. It could be inherit. It could be acquire. It could be fulfill. It could even be the verb do. What must I do to do eternal life? Which is an interesting question if you think about it. Inherit, acquire, fulfill, do. And what we see in the gospel exchange this morning is that Jesus answers this question pretty handily, right? He says actually what I would say in a lot of cases is go look at the text. What does it say? And he makes a distinction that is interesting, I think, between what does it say and what do you read there? highlighting for us that there is a difference. There's a difference between what the text says or is trying to say and how we read it, how we interpret it. As a good, faithful Jewish man, Jesus would have known and had a deep appreciation for the fact that the rabbinic tradition has always been about having lots of different interpretations of the words in the text. Rabbis for generations before Jesus were debating, arguing, interpreting in lots of different ways together. And so in some ways, I think what Jesus is doing here is nodding a little bit at the fact that it says something, but it also matters how we read it, what we read into it. Even Jesus would not have believed that the text was inerrant in the way that people talk about it sometimes, that it doesn't move, that it doesn't breathe, that it doesn't mean different things at different times to different people. Jesus would have seen the text as alive. And so it matters, this distinction between what does it say and what do you read there. But he sort of sails past this first question, I think, if you're looking at it objectively, right? He sort of eases right through. And so the lawyer, unwilling to give up, still trying to catch him out, says, okay, fine then, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And to me, it always sounds like one of those questions that, like, the kid who's a nudge in the back of the classroom asks, he was trying to annoy you and he didn't get what he wanted, so now he's trying again. Fine, Jesus, whatever, you did okay, you didn't say anything dumb. Who is my neighbor? Now maybe you'll say something dumb. And instead, Jesus tells a great story. And it's a story that he's doing a lot in. There's a lot of movement in this story. And in order to understand it, we have to understand a little bit of the backstory between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Once part of the same nation, these are two peoples that ultimately were divided essentially by race and ethnicity. 
as the kingdoms and the tribes of God's people were divided and defeated over time, right? We've heard this story. You heard some of it this morning in Hebrew scriptures. As the people are divided and defeated, the Samaritans end up sort of being separated from the Jewish people. And what they do is they intermarry with the Assyrians. So they kind of break the tribal rule while they're oppressed, while they're being occupied, while they're carried off, as Israel often is. And they end up intermarrying with the Assyrians, thus in the Jewish people's eyes, creating a, quote, new race. And this is the basis of the really palpable hatred between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. It's about race. It's about the color of their skin and the features on their face. And it spills over into some other reasons, as often happens when we disagree with other people, right? It starts about one small thing and then it turns into everything about them. So it becomes about land and religious practice and understanding of God and all kinds of other things. But at its, at its core, the tiny little seed that creates that hate is about race. Now the Jewish people thought that the Samaritans were awful, worthless, traitors. They wouldn't socialize with them. They wouldn't visit the places where they live. They wouldn't eat with them. We had some real, real barriers here. So you can imagine in this context that this story that Jesus tells is a little bit, maybe a lot a bit, of a slap in the face to the religious leaders that he's talking to. Obviously, the religious leaders in this story are not the hero. Instead, the hero is someone that they actually loathe, someone that they hate. The person that they're meant to learn a lesson from is someone they very much think is beneath them. None of us would particularly like that feeling, right? To be told that we should learn from somebody that we think is wrong, that we think is beneath us. No one likes that feeling. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus does in this really good, really rich, really complicated story. Now, in the text, it doesn't explicitly say that it's a Jewish man, but we assume that it is. First, because Jesus is talking to a, a Jewish crowd of people, and second, because the man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's right in sort of the heart of things. And if he was Samaritan or a foreigner or something else, he'd have no reason to travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, probably. So we assume that he's a Jewish man who's been beaten and robbed and left for dead by the side of the road. A priest and a Levite come down the road first, two of the prestigious religious elites, people with power and privilege, people who would have been expected, by the way, to do the right thing, <laughs> to stop and help. Their image in the community would depend on that. They were supposed to be bastions of charity and kindness and respect the law, which required them at this point to, quote, care for their neighbor. We'll come back to that in a minute. And they literally go by, not just sort of by him, but they actually like try to cross over to the other side of the road. It's worse even than averting your eyes and trying to look away, right? They literally try to get as far away from this person as they can. And I think it's worth pausing for a minute to wonder a little bit about their motivation for doing this. Is it that they're lazy, do you think? That they just don't want to be bothered, they're busy, they have somewhere else to be? Is it that they're better 
than this person who's obviously some kind of sinner, right? Something bad just happened to this person, and I don't really want to have anything to do with that. Maybe they don't want to spend their own money. Maybe they don't want to get their hands dirty. Maybe it's that they don't have any compassion. Maybe their hearts have been hardened. After all, Jesus is constantly accusing this group of religious elites of following the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law, of checking the boxes and saying, yes, I did it, (laughs) but not really letting the good work they're supposed to do sink into their being, into their bodies, to make a difference in who they are in the world. He's constantly accusing them of being interested in being seen to do the right thing, but not actually following through and doing the right thing when people are not actually watching. So maybe this is what Jesus is showing us, that they have somehow lost their compassion in the busyness of the world, in the competition of the world, in the danger of the world, in the things that hurt us all in the world, in their own struggles and their own desires. And then along comes the Samaritan, who by stereotypes at the time was supposed to be less than human from a Jewish perspective, untrustworthy, of no value. And shockingly, it's the Samaritan who has compassion on his enemy, on this very likely Jewish person who has been beaten and left to die. And he doesn't just stop and say, are you okay? He doesn't sort of prop him up and help him onto the next place on the highway where he can drop him. He doesn't kind of throw money at him and see if that'll fix the problem. Instead, he gets involved. He goes to him, pours wine and oil on his wounds to clean them, and then bandages them so that he won't get sick, get some kind of infection. And then he puts the man on his own animal and presumably has to walk himself then, right? So he's putting himself out, literally. It's an inconvenience. He takes the man to an inn, takes care of him, spends money to feed him, clothe him, put him up. And then, even though it seems like he has to go, he spends more money and assures the innkeeper that he'll pay everything back so that the man can continue to get what he needs. How involved is the Samaritan? He literally gets his hands dirty cleaning the wounds, right? Where he probably needed to be gentle but firm. He puts his money into the mix too, inconveniences himself, does all of this for a stranger. And not even a stranger, someone he perceives, someone he's been taught to believe, is his enemy. And he asks nothing in return. There are a lot of moving pieces in this story, but there's two specifically that I want to focus on this morning. Two very important things that Jesus is doing with this story. And the first is that until now, until Jesus, the idea, the conception of who one's neighbor was, was pretty limited. And that actually comes from scripture. There's a place in Leviticus that commands that the Jewish people will care for their neighbor and it specifically identifies that their neighbor is one of their own people. And in some ways, that kind of makes sense at the time, right? It was a tribal culture. There was danger outside the bounds of the tribe. They sort of needed to stay within the limits of God's people. God orders this in some ways, we think, in order to protect them, to keep them kind of insular. In fact, this literally is the conflict with the Samaritans. 
right? That the Samaritans eventually step outside of this understanding of being God's people. And what Jesus is doing and saying is not only that you should get over this sort of stereotype and prejudice that you have about the Samaritans, but also your neighbor doesn't have to be one of you. In fact, your neighbor appears to be everybody, anyone who needs help, perhaps even and especially your enemy. So what we're getting in this story, and we get it a couple of other places, but it's, but it's core here, is this understanding of a new and expansive neighbor. No more narrow view. All of a sudden, everyone is your neighbor, and perhaps especially the weak, the vulnerable, the wounded, perhaps especially when they're different from you and they need help. And the second thing is, if we return to the first question that the lawyer asks, to the word inherit, which could be, again, translated in several different ways. If you choose instead of inherit, if you choose acquire or fulfill, for example, then it might appear that to have eternal life, we have to participate in that in some way by being good neighbors, by doing what the Samaritan does. And this actually is precisely what we believe in the Episcopal Church, that our salvation is an inheritance from God, that we don't earn it or win it, that it is a gift of God's mercy, of love from the one who created us, and yet we are invited over and over in Scripture, and I dare say expected, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and to participate in the process if we take it seriously, especially the Apostle Paul is profoundly clear that if this is real for us, we will participate in the process, not just sit back and receive the gift, but ensure that the gift changes us and that we pass the gift on. That is how we sort of build our little corner of the kingdom now, how we claim the abundant life that Jesus brings us and offers us. And that abundant life, we believe and can see in the story, that it is particularly present when we love God and our neighbor, when we show compassion, when we get involved, when we get our hands dirty. Surely many of you, hopefully all of you, have had that experience where you end up in a situation, you actually get your hands dirty doing something for someone and you realize actually that you were the one who received the gift, not the other way around. Now last week, we talked a little bit together about what I might summarize as a, a feeling of a lack of compassion in the world around us, created by our struggles and our desires and this difficult season that we're in, in the way that we treat each other, perhaps in the way that we treat others. And as the gospel often does, it, it likes to build on itself. And so this week, I think it definitely does that. It takes a, a step further down the road of not just are we meant to be the change that we, see, that we want to see in the world, not just are we meant to sort of go out and be kind and loving people and to combat this sort of larger dynamic. This week, the words are about pity, mercy, compassion. And we're meant to take that word, we'll stick with compassion for the moment, and imagine that it applies to every single person we meet 
not just someone who's like us, not just people who are part of our tribe, but literally to every single person we meet who is our neighbor. Interestingly, that, that phrase that we hear that Jesus quotes from Scripture about loving your neighbor as yourself, I think we rush by the second half of that. We're really good at talking about loving our neighbor. Maybe not so good at always following through, but good at talking about the first half of that. How many times have you thought about the second half where you love your neighbor as yourself? This week, I hope that you will take the word compassion with you. And think about the fact that each person you meet is your neighbor and is deserving of that compassion. Someone you're meant to love and to love as you love yourself. Think about the last couple of times you helped someone or maybe could have helped someone. What did you do? Did you avert your eyes and walk by on the other side? Or did you take on the actual really intimate task of helping closely, not at a distance, but right, right up front, hands dirty in the midst of it, of listening, of settling in be- beside someone in the midst of whatever it is that they are facing? How can you do that better the next time? And remember that this love your neighbor as yourself is a core part of who we are, and it implies also that you're meant to love yourself too. To be good to yourself, to take care of yourself. So while you're busy trying to love your neighbor, remember also that God loves you, that you are beautifully and wonderfully made, that you are worthy of love, and hold that within you and offer that love to your neighbor, all of them especially the ones who are different from you, especially the ones you perceive to be your enemy. Amen.